you know, we've been really frustrated in terms of getting carbon pricing to work nationally, but I think it is an important part of moving towards a decarbonized economy. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. You know, in the United States, Europe, China, India, and many other parts of the world, when people consider policies to reduce carbon dioxide emissions to help address climate change, priority attention is frequently given to the electric power sector partly because of its standing as the first or second largest source of emissions in many countries, and partly because frequently it presents low-hanging fruit, that is, low-cost abatement opportunities. Today, I'm delighted to host for this conversation an economist who has spent some three decades studying the electricity sector and making important contributions to the design of new institutions and appropriate regulations. I'm referring to Karen Palmer, who is a senior fellow at Resources for the Future in Washington, D.C., where she directs the Future of Power initiative. Karen continues to carry out important research and serves regularly on a host of government panels. And she was recently the president of the Association of Environmental and Resource Economists. Welcome, Karen. Thanks, Rob. It's great to join you on the podcast. So before we talk about your research and your current thinking about environmental and energy policy, let's go back to how you came to be where you are. So where did you grow up? So I grew up in the state of Maine. Um, My dad was a United Methodist minister, and we moved around a fair amount, Um, was born on the coast in Damariscotta, spent some time in Aroostook County, where they used to grow a lot of potatoes, and ended up going to high school in Brunswick, Maine, which is where Bowdoin College is. Yes. So that all sounds wonderful. We go up to Maine, in fact, very soon, we go up to Maine, where we rent a house on the quiet side of Mount Desert Island each summer. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, so I I envy you having grown up there. So what does that tell us in terms of primary school? Yeah, so I went to primary school in a number of different locations, Uh um, really Bangor and Holton, Maine. And then high school was where? High school started in Holton, Maine, where we got off for potato harvest a bit in the fall and and then um, finished high school in Brunswick, Maine. I think you're the first person I've ever spoken with in my life who got off of school for potato harvest. <laughs> yeah. But I guess that would be in, in Maine and in Idaho. That might happen. I imagine so, yeah. So college then, you came down to my neck of the woods. That's right. I went to Brandeis University. And how did that come to be? I, 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 fr- frankly, for someone who is the daughter of a Methodist minister, it's a little surprising to me that you went to, to Brandeis. You know, our family's always been very ecumenically minded, and uh-huh. I was really intrigued by going to a fairly new institution that mm-hmm. was founded by, um, you know, that is as to be a Jewish-founded institution, and it just seemed like a way to 
explore um, new ideas and meet people who had very different backgrounds from myself. So I that was bet. part of what drew me there. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. And speaking of interesting, what was your interest uh, when you did your BA in economics? Were you already getting interested in energy and environment or did that come later? That actually came later. Um, I worked with Ann Carter, um, who was uh, a professor who actually was on the board of Resources for the Future when I came here, but I did not know that at the time. Mm-hmm. And she... Um, was somebody who was like a mathematical economist who did a lot of work using input-output techniques. And I did a um, mini honors thesis on the studying the effects of tourism on the main economy. Um, So yeah, that, that it it was more kind of economic growth and um, regional economics that I was interested in when I was in college. And then in grad school, um, I still didn't really move to environment, but I went to grad school at Boston College, and that's where I focused on industrial organization and regulated industries and also um, public finance. I see. Now, before you even went to graduate school, you you worked, did you not, after you graduated Brandeis? That's right. Um, so Ann Carter had worked a lot as a consultant to Data Resources Incorporated, mm-hmm. um, or DRI as it was known at the time, and they were probably most famous for doing macroeconomic forecasting. Right. But there was a group that took the macroeconomic forecasts and sort of disaggregated them to implications for various sectors in the economy. And I worked with that group, the inter-industry group, for four years after college. Now, DRI is not an institution nowadays that a lot of our listeners will be familiar with, but in its day, it was exceptionally prominent uh, in Lexington, Massachusetts, as I recall. That's right. Yeah, it was um, founded by Otto Eckstein from Harvard. And yes, they did a lot of work both for government and industry producing sort of forecasts and using their largely their macroeconomic models Mm -hmm. to um, inform thinking about various issues. I, I will say that I think they made a lot of their money back. This was before personal computers providing access to mainframe computers that were located in Lexington and providing access to data. And a lot of people used that information to do their own analyses, but we did regularly produce forecasts, both with the macro model and the inter-industry model. Matter of fact, on a quarterly basis, we would redo, we would do those forecasts. Now it was founded by Otto Eckstein and Donald Marin in 1969 and then sold to McGraw Hill 10 years later, 1979, was just before you got there. You got, you arrived there in 1981, is that right? That, that's right, yes. And you stayed there quite a while. Yeah, yeah, for four years. Um, about, like, I guess midway through my third year, I started realizing that you couldn't make a career of doing this kind of economic analysis without Mm -hmm. further training. And so I started, had set out to apply to graduate school at the end of college and then delayed that. But I started taking classes at Boston College in their Mm -hmm. graduate program and ended up transitioning that into being a full-time student there. I see. So uh, you've already mentioned Boston College and doing your PhD there in your general area. What, What was your dissertation topic and who were your advisors? I worked with Frank Gallup and mm-hmm. um, 
Stephen Pulaski and Peter oh. Gottschalk. But but Frank was my main advisor. Uh-huh. And um, I was piggybacking on some consulting, really, that he was doing with the phone companies, looking at pricing within regulated industry. And the, the title of my dissertation was A New Test for Cross-Subsidies in Regulated Industries with Application to a Local Telecommunications Monopoly. So it's a real mouthful there. But basically, looking at pricing structures, people at the time were familiar with the fact that um, long distance services tend to subsidize local service mm-hmm. for telephone customers. But another question that remained sort of in the ether was the extent to which business uh, services subsidize uh, um, residential services. And that mm-hmm. was the question that I looked at in my um, research. Now, I mean, generically, there are a lot of points at which that kind of work for in telecommunications uh, connects with studies and issues in the electricity sector. Right. Of course, the telecommunications sector has evolved quite a bit since we've moved to yes. cell phones and the yeah. like. But, but the uh, the idea of natural monopolies and having to to regulate them to get reasonable prices and to cover costs spanned both the telecommunications industry and the electric industry. And I think. That's part of why um, Resources for the Future ended up being a good place for me to come, because they were interested in folks who were doing work beyond um, beyond the industries that RFF was focusing on. So, so how did it happen then that you went to RFF? Was it through the, you know, the usual uh, process at the ASSA meetings and, you know, being interviewed and then the flybacks and all that? Or was there a more direct connection? How did it all come about? It, it, indeed, it was through the traditional mm-hmm. job market. And I will say that I, ha- I was married at the time and my husband had his own remodeling business in the Boston area. Mm-hmm. So I primarily focused my job search in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. but I was very intrigued by the mission at RFF and the flexibility to a certain extent. So um, when I got the offer, I managed to convince my husband that, well, you know, resources for the future, they do academic quality research. It's sort of different audiences, but they have similar expectations in terms of publications as I would have at a university. And I think I'm not closing any doors. So why don't we go to Washington for three years and then we'll come back to the Boston area? (laughs) But, But that didn't quite happen. That did not happen. That did not happen. And that, you know, I came here in the fall of 1989. So in October, it will be 34 years. Wow. Wow. So, you know, you and I share something that we're, we're lifers at the uh, first institution we went to after receiving our PhD. Yes, indeed. I, I came here and have not left. So, um, was Bob Fry president of RFF when you joined or was it? Paul Portney. Bob Fry was president. That's right. I see. So um, you've you've been there for a number of presidents. That's correct. Can you can you recite them all? Okay. Um, yeah, I think I think so. So it was it was Bob Fry, and then Paul Portney was president, and then um, Phil Sharp, and oh, now right. Richard Newell. So yes. Three so it's decades, just four, four, yeah. four presidents. Yeah, yeah, that right. that shows how long they each uh, have stayed. In fact, so let's turn to your work in the world of environmental and energy economics research. 
Now, I assume, given that you just said about this, you know, 30, more than 30 years since receipt of your PhD, that you've seen some, you know, really significant changes in the world of energy and environmental economics over that period. Um, are there particular changes in the world of energy and environmental economic research that stand out to you? So um, in terms of energy and electricity specifically, mm -hmm. I was fortunate to be at RFF and involved in research during the sort of liberation revolution or right. the um, restructuring of the electricity sector. Yeah. And that's been really interesting to follow. I mean, um, you know, I came here because the, the overlaps in terms of regulation in my, my prior research in graduate school and, and what happens in electricity and also to a certain extent, natural gas um, were evident, but things were definitely changing in both natural gas and electricity sector um, early during my time here. And one of the first projects that I worked on was, um, well, it was a few years in, I, I guess I should say, but as the electricity sector started to introduce more competition in terms of mm -hmm. who was going to actually deliver electricity, it became clear that there are a lot of challenges in terms of policy and um, pricing and how markets function mm -hmm. that remained open and could use some informing. So we um, wrote a book called myself and several of my colleagues, although the primary authors on that book, I'd say were myself and my colleague, Tim Brennan, called A Shock to the System that was sort of mm -hmm. a guide to the various policy debates that surrounded restructuring. You know, we're thinking back 30 years and changes in the profession. If I think about it more broadly, what about changes you've seen uh, of the role of women in the economics profession? Oh, <laughs> well, in the economics profession, it, it's definitely changed. I think, you know, economics has a lot of um, issues still to tackle on that yeah. front, but um, there definitely are a lot more women in economics and also women working more generally on policy issues mm -hmm. in electricity and um, energy. I can say, you know, that when I first came to RFF and would go to either policy or meetings of the Energy Economics Association, yeah. there would be very, very few women. And now there are a lot more. And indeed, you know, a lot of the women at the the economists winning awards from those mm -hmm. associations are, are women. So in, in your graduating class for the PhD in 1990, what percentage of the class were women approximately? Oh, good question. I think, I think at Boston College, maybe 40%. Oh, that's very high. Um, yeah, I for think that it was time. higher. Yeah. Because I, yeah. I graduated um, PhD two years earlier in 1988. And I would say at Harvard, of 30 PhD students in my class, I'd say two to four were women. Wow. And, and nowadays, the PhD class, both public policy, the program I chair at the Kennedy School, but also economics, ranges from 50-50 to 60-40, something in there, yeah. 65-35, something like uh, that most of the time. So before we turn to the policy world, which I do want to get to, um, I want to ask you one more question about your research and your writing. Um, 
I hesitate to do this because I know it's like asking you to identify your favorite child, but if, if you had to identify one research publication of yours, solo authored or co-authored doesn't matter, and it could be scholarly work or it could have been something for the National Academy of Sciences, um, what, are you, what would be the one product that you're most proud of, and more importantly, why? I thought a lot about this because I've heard you ask other folks this question, and um, I'm going to deviate a little bit and and talk about a paper that my co-authors and I actually never submitted to a journal. One of these things we kick ourselves for, but it is oh, that's often even better. Cited. Okay, so um, it's a 2001 RFF discussion paper that I co-authored with Dallas Bertra and uh-huh. also uh, my former colleagues Anthony Paul and Ranjit Barvakar. And the title of the paper is "The Effect of Allowance Allocation on the Cost of Carbon Emissions Trading." Uh-huh. And and I like the paper because. It um, really focuses on the intersection between um, cap-and-trade policy design and the electric power sector. Mm -hmm. So in the paper, what we do is we um, compare the efficiency consequences of using different approaches, including an auction and a couple of free allocation approaches to distributing allowances in a a program that regulates the electricity sector primarily. And the reason that allocation matters so much for electricity is because in in a substantial amount of the country, despite this discussion we had about restructuring and the mm-hmm. innovation of markets, um, electricity prices are set through regulation. And that means that if you get allowances for free, the opportunity cost of using those allowances isn't really passed through in prices to consumers, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whereas it would be if the markets aren't regulated and they function like markets. And so it draws a distinction between using auctions and using free allocation. That's important to the efficiency of these programs. Yeah, this was a big issue when I was working on the development of the SO2 allowance trading program in the George H.W. Bush White House, because this was in the middle of the restructuring of the industry and looking at the differences there would be in terms of those who were under the old system and then those electric utilities getting allowances who were under the new system. Um, And it was a time of a lot of very rapid change. That's right. Yeah. What, What are the percentages now? actually, of either by electricity generation or something else of the restructuring compared with the old system operating under a state regulatory commission determining what the prices can be? I think it's still the case that the majority of customers, something like 60%, purchase their electricity under rate of return regulation. Yeah. That's, yeah. So that's the, interesting. The, when we wrote our restructuring primers, we anticipated a world where there would be sweeping change, yeah. but it's been modest by those standards. That's interesting. So speaking of that and thinking about uh, U.S. policy, bring it up to the present. What's your assessment of the current administration's uh, energy policy or, for that matter, its climate change policy? So, so the climate change policy, which, as you know, focuses largely on um, using subsidies in mm-hmm. the form of tax credits to encourage clean electricity, but that's true in terms of legislation. 
Um, but there's also other activities going on. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that they weren't able to fully price carbon doesn't mean that there's gonna, not going to be efforts to address emissions from emitting sources, which aren't really targeted under the subsidies directly. But we are about to see the third try at regulating, or we have seen the proposed form of the third try at using the Clean Air Act to right. regulate emissions right. from um, existing and new fossil fuel generators. And so there's a there's not only the carrot, but there is a bit of a stick. Um, but going beyond the federal level, I mm -hmm. think there's a lot of activity happening in the states mm -hmm. on both fronts, again, in terms of subsidizing clean sources of power, but also imposing increasingly prices mm -hmm. on power producers. And so, you know, as economists, we like carbon pricing because it's efficient. We often pose this dichotomy between, we, well, we either price carbon or we subsidize clean energy. I think that's kind of a false dichotomy mm -hmm. and that, you know, policies are going to build both ways. From, from both ends. Now, something we've seen change, at least in my mind, it's changed, it's evolved relatively rapidly, is that when I first started working out in California on climate change policy at a time that Dallas Bertrand certainly was as well, and perhaps yourself, um, that was where I first heard the phrase environmental justice. And politically, it was quite important early on there. But at that point in time, I didn't hear about it a lot in Washington, D.C. The world has changed since then. And now, both in the policy world nationally and in the scholarly world, in terms of research, environmental justice and just transition, particularly in the context of climate change policy, but not exclusively, have become very prominent. What's your reaction to that increased attention? Oh, I think it's really important in terms of um, both making progress on the climate issues and also um, taking actions to rectify past injustices and sort of finding ways to make these um, two efforts work together. I think the recognition that t undertaking actions to reduce emissions of carbon can also help to reduce emissions of um, other air pollutants that affect local air quality is important and finding ways to do those jointly um, is, is a good thing. And I do, it, it's going to require probably some tweaks and things in places where they're using cap and trade, for example, to address concerns, but I don't think it's impossible to marry the two. And does the future of power initiative that you are directing at RFF, does that include attention to environmental justice and just transition issues? RFF certainly works is on environmental justice and just transition issues. I think our, our plans now, well, starting now and going into the coming year, will include more focus also on energy justice related uh -huh. issues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as we look to decarbonize the economy more broadly, the costs of electricity are going to play an important role in terms of people's incentives to adopt or to do things that will likely be necessary to get rid of fossil fuel use in buildings like adopting heat pumps mm -hmm. and electrifying other um, energy end uses, maybe such as vehicles. And so um, 
keeping electricity prices low in general will be part of, or the role that electricity prices will play in general will be part of that. But also there are important upfront costs associated with doing these things and, and adopting these new technologies, which really substitute more capital costs and less energy costs, because not only are they electrified, but they're often extremely efficient. And so finding ways to make that work for across the board and for all types of consumers, including low-income consumers and and um, historically disadvantaged communities is going to be an important part of the policy puzzle. Finally, are there some research gaps? Are, are there some areas, some questions, some issues in the broad area of energy and environmental economics and policy, perhaps within the electricity sector studies, but or elsewhere? that you think are just not receiving sufficient attention or that have some low-hanging fruit, a little bit of research could have tremendous gains? Well, I think this question about electrification is Mm -hmm. an important one and really understanding what motivates consumers. Um, For better or worse, you know, a lot of places, the, um, you know, it, it, Change has to happen broadly across the economy. Mm-hmm. A lot of consumers are skeptical of climate change. A lot of voters are skeptical mm-hmm. of climate change. So I think understanding ways to convince the broad populace that um, moving towards uh, electrified appliances and, mm-hmm. and vehicles and other things, maybe even electric bikes, is going to involve some nuance. And I think research on that front could be important. I also think that, you know, we've been really frustrated in terms of getting carbon pricing to work nationally, but I think it is an important part of moving towards Mm -hmm. a decarbonized economy. And if it's that work is happening at the states, then understanding ways to kind of link those various state programs together is is going to be an important policy challenge for sure. And, And research that can inform that would be helpful. Oh, so that's a a great place to bring this conversation to a conclusion. Listen, thank you very much, Karen, for having taken time to join us today. Thanks so much to you, Rob. It's been a delight talking to you. So my guest today has been Karen Palmer, Senior Fellow at Resources for the Future. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.